welcome to this week's Hotel Analyst podcast, where, as usual, you'll find the two of us arranged around the desk of Insight to discuss three matters of importance to the hotel investment community uh, that we've set ourselves to think about the last week or so. Uh, I'm joined by Andrew Sankster, the editorial director of Hotel Analyst. My name is Chris Baum, the editor at Hotel Analyst. And the first topic we're going to look about is the uh, ever-growing creep of operational real estate into other uh, property sectors. Um, operational uh, real estate is, is very much something that we talk about because uh, it, it's certainly uh, something that's really vital to the hotel industry and it seems to have spread. It's an increasingly important play in uh, many other uh, businesses with buildings with beds. Uh, and now we're just uh, been ta- taking a look at what's going on in the retail sector where finally it seems uh, landlords have had to wake up to the fact that they're going to have to be much more hands-on in uh, extracting value from their real estate in future. Now when I started uh, in, in property journalism uh, many moons ago uh, we were reporting on uh, on retail landlords who own a shopping centre and they would just literally expect tenants to sign up for a 25-year lease. That lease would ratchet up in its rent every five years and uh, happy days. They would just leave the retailer to it and keep collecting the rent. Well, uh, quite a few things have changed since those days. Uh, not least, many of us buying many more things online. Uh, we've accelerated that process through uh, lockdowns and the pandemic. Uh, with the result that actually there's a lot less uh, need for high street space for retailers and even those those that are kind of do very well with uh, with uh, face-to-face retailing have cut back on their uh, square footage or square meterage they have in Britain's high streets. Um, Incidentally, the UK is kind of the uh, the leader in the move towards online retailing out of all of the European markets and so uh, it's it's in the UK where this this sort of uh, destruction of value of, of shopping centres and, and high streets is is being played out uh, most acutely uh, as, as such. So what we're seeing is uh, owners of, of retail space suddenly figuring out they're going to have to work work their assets in a new way. Um, and uh, the latest we've heard is is from a, a big big retail uh, landlord Landsec about how they're going to uh, reform the way they look after and find tenants for their retail space. And in fact, they've, they've torn up the rule book such that you can now lease a piece of real estate in one of their shopping centres for, for as little as a day, um, never mind 25 years. Um, and they're you know on the lookout for the next retail concepts that are going to excite and entertain visitors to shopping centres because they need to get people in uh, and excite them and entertain them. Uh, if they're going to increase footfall and uh, keep those people spending in physical space rather than sitting on their sofas and clicking on uh, Amazon. So big change, big upset and uh, finally it seems that the retail landlords are working out how they're going to establish themselves and earn a better return from the assets they own. Yes, operational real estate is a about that linkage between landlord and tenant um, and it, it the focus of operational real estate is driving higher levels of return by uh, being able to engage in both the opco and the propco simultaneously um, and 
what has been exposed and your what you're talking about there chris with the 25 year triple net lease it's fine when everything is just plowing along in a, in a sort of in a normal fashion but as soon as it gets severely stress tested the wheels come off and that's certainly what's happened um so there's been both a cyclical and secular shock um which has hit the retail sector so uh the cyclical hit as uh, the the, the mama, mother of all uh, cyclical hits which is the the shutdown thanks to the pandemic for for non-grocery retail anyway um so it was a huge huge impact there and the secular is this long-term trend as you're discussing chris as you mentioned the the move to online retail it's not the abandonment of uh any physical retail but it is a it marks a huge shift in it and much more towards experiential retail retail rather than the transactional piece because if you're just doing the transactional piece if i'm just looking for a i don't know a roll of sellotape i can click on a uh, online retailer and get that pinged over to me i don't need to go into a shop to buy it and um, um, i don't need any experience buying sellotape i just need it pinged over to me but if i'm buying um um i don't know um i know i'd buy many new pairs of shoes but they my teenage uh, children were buying clothes they want to go in and they, they want to have an experience doing that um and it's all part of the process of that um and that's a different operation so it's that linkage of 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 the nature of the retail experiences going on there but opera is is the connection between um, what is generated inside the building and the 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 um, ownership of that building, and that is increasingly sweeping across most bits of of property and property investment, not just commercial real estate. Um, in terms of the you know you've got the big three of offices, retail and industrial, but also in increasingly in residential too. Now we're seeing elements of it creeping in there particularly um, built to rent um, and co-living, um, how you position co-living there, um, probably more on the residential side, I would argue, but but clearly operational real estate as well in, in terms of its shared spaces. So I took a look at Lansec um, and looked at their um, investor presentation uh, back in february actually they had a capital markets day in february and they they've been sort of through a period like a lot of uh, focused property investors through a period of reinvention and part of that reinvention is very much embracing the whole concept of opera and so yes they're still sticking with their central london offices they're still sticking with major retail destinations as you discussed chris but also a key bit they're looking at is uh, mixed use urban neighborhoods and opera and hospitality and opera type um, businesses are fundamental to success in this development um, piece and they took a, a bite at it they bought um, a thing called u plus i back in september for 190 million and this took them up from you know in terms of this urban mixed use bit it was 
um, before this acquisition, 3.6% of their overall pie in terms of um, revenues. Um, it then went to 8% immediately following that acquisition, and they're wanting to take it to about 25% of future revenues. Um, and how they're doing that is these big schemes. I mean, they've got one of them up here in Cambridge, actually, um, right on my doorstep. It's not one of the ones that you're underway. It's a sort of future one they're hoping to get get through. Um, it's the Cambridge Northern Fringe East. It's uh, 120 acres, three billion uh, pound development, 8,000 homes, life science industry, inevitably here in Cambridge. Um, but uh, you know, underpinning, you know, the first bit of this the there's only two things gone into planning so far on the overall scheme and one of them is a 217 room hotel and that sort of shows just how core hospitality is i think to underpinning this this new sort of urban regeneration piece that's going on um and it, what's interesting i think with land securities is how they're exiting their leased hotel portfolio they're a big um investor in accor hotels but they're on fixed leases um some variable rents actually i should say um but, but they're getting out of that business which they see as subscale and getting into this mixed use um a development where they see much better returns so what they're talking about in terms of the the yield on the business is being sold off around the four and a half percent mark but they reckon the new ones somewhere between five and a half to seven percent so they're looking to tick it up a little bit and they're looking at ungeared um irrs um you know between 10 and 14 percent um which you can see the attractiveness of this this these this new move for um, um, land security so i think it's an interesting switch it it's further evidence of the increasing importance of opera as you said chris and it's further evidence of the blurring of the boundaries between all these previously siloed categories so you wouldn't normally have say um last mile logistics sitting in a development alongside resi alongside hotel alongside other hospitality alongside retail alongside office and all of this is sort of um coming together um this blurring of the boundaries um, um and underpinned by a um an operational real estate approach to the investment now we're going to talk about what's going on in china and particularly how western brands are using uh, local partners to help grow their their businesses across the country Spurred by the fact that Ennismore, which is Accor's lifestyle division, has just signed a partnership agreement aiming to deliver more than 1,000 Joe and Joe branded hotels across China. So this is the latest in a series of, of kind of partnership strategic uh, support ag agreements um, signed between the Western brands and, and local businesses in uh, China. And some of these seem to be working out quite well. Um, some of them have been going for quite a quite a while and are perhaps being uh, finessed to a slightly different level. Um, but also, it's, it's interesting that um, the latest one kind of comes in alongside uh, several others, which means that uh, several of the international brands are going to be relying on one big uh, business in China, Country Garden Group, to deliver lots and lots of hotels. So. Um, <coughs> A thousand Joe and Joes. That's what that's what uh, uh, 
Country Garden or Funyard, the uh, a, a subsidiary of, of Country Garden, is is hoping to deliver for uh, for Ennismore and Accor. But it's not the only set of hotels that Country Garden is, is hoping to deliver. Um, they've previously signed an agreement with Minor International to uh, deliver some of the uh, Thai groups' uh, brands, including some of their NH European brands as well, in the country. Uh, and there's also previously been a, uh, a signature of a deal with Hilton, uh, where Hilton uh, ex- is expecting to see more than a thousand of its home to suites service department uh, developments across China. So Country Garden got a lot to be getting on with. Um, it, it, it's, it's interesting to think about how they, when they get a, a development site for a hotel, how they're going to choose which of their various partners will have first dibs on it. <clears throat> um, but uh, looking more broadly, um, uh, across the kind of uh, this this sort of these partnership agreements, uh, Hilton has already done very well um, working through a, a an agreement to deliver uh, Hampton hotels across China. Um, those are doing very very well, uh, and they recently extended the agreement, um, which is going to give them again that magical one thousand properties. <coughs> Uh, of Hamptons, they already got 250 Hamptons open in China, so that uh, that deal's going quite well. And of course, the other big partnership agreement um, is between Huazu, who we report on fairly regularly, and Accor. Um, and Huazu is delivering um, Ibis and Novotel's across China. As ever, the numbers and the pace of development are breathtaking, um, but it does seem these agreements by and large work. Yeah, it's unusual um, in these master franchise announcements, which you uh, master uh, uh, um, in terms of development um, deals, um, rather, I should say, rather than necessarily just franchise. But um, what you tend to see is a great hurrah at the beginning, um, a lot of interest, both for the brand and for the developer and this suits both the brand and the developer and then a quiet <laughs> spectacularly bad underperformance on the promises um that's a usual play for these things but in china that does seem to be something of an exception so far in terms of how this has gone as you say you point rightly i think chris to the the hampton situation um where that has succeeded in rolling out um I think you also in your piece mentioned the whole meltdown in the property development uh, situation in the People's Republic of China. Um, And I think this could well actually lead to these master development deals looking a lot more like master development deals in other parts of the world where they where they largely under you know fail to deliver on their initial promises uh we'll see but certainly um i'm not quite sure how um these development deals are going to dodge the overall meltdown in chinese property development because it's pretty spectacular i mean it's not just evergrande it's a whole raft of businesses which are running into big trouble now in china there's been massive um overbuilding um there's lots of unoccupied uh, properties this is just 
way beyond just hotels we're talking residency in particular but other infrastructure projects as well and you know what normally happens in an economy these these uh, developments they're um, written down um, and they don't go into boosting GDP numbers but they don't get written down in China and they all go into boosting GDP numbers and there's a lot of skepticism about these double-digit GDP growth annual growth figures whether a lot of that's sort of been sort of smoke and mirrors um, but I think certainly going forward um, we're not going to see um, GDP pushed forward by uh, property development now it's something like I mean it's very difficult China is opaque and it's difficult to get uh, um, accurate independent numbers but those who are making guesstimates on this say it could be as much as 30 percent of the economic growth in the country is being driven off the back of property development um, now if you look at um, other sort of Western economies, developed Western economies, you're looking at about 10% of GDP being um, driven by that. Where it's gone up a lot, um, say Spain, it reached into about 20% or so, and, and, and in the Republic of Ireland, um, normally that ended in a spectacular fall um, and property collapses, and we certainly both those both Spain and Ireland saw spectacular property collapses and everybody is anticipating a similar thing now is underway in China given what's happened in um, with Evergrande um, who knows with the you know the Chinese Communist Party at the helm however quite how this is all going to be dealt with because um, they do have a sort of different way of doing things um, over there so I, I think you know it, it's a hard one to actually have a read of but it's very difficult to see how how they're going to sustain this level of development and it's very difficult to see given that the whole property development piece is going to um, slow down markedly um, how this is going not going to have a similar slowdown in terms of the hotel development piece so um, it's still going to be a very big market I just don't think China's going to be the two or three times the size of North America which we were talking about a decade ago um, that is not going to be the case um, I will be surprised if China um, actually overtakes the US in terms of hotel development anytime soon um, and I think you know I think this is also we've got a secondary thing coming in here which is this um, geopolitical political um, switcheroo happening post the invasion of Ukraine by Russia which has brought to the fore the problems dealing with autocratic countries um, like Russia but also on a much bigger scale with China and there is underway at the moment a pullback on both sides here both the Chinese pulling out of the West um, and the West pulling out of China um, and this is going to impact again I think from a Western global major hotel brand perspective um, you know how useful is it to have this big exposure in China um, there is a question mark on that we talked about recently the profitability issues with some of these investments and I think you've got this other geopolitical tension in there you've got the domestic market meltdown with, um, with, the, with the property developers which all I think points 
you know negatively in terms of whether any of these magically big numbers are actually going to be hit i suspect it's going to take much much longer um, nonetheless it's still going to be a big market it's still an important market it's still important for the, the global majors to be able to hit their uh, net unit growth um, ambitions um, so we will see them you know keeping keeping on um keeping on as it were in in china um i just just think um we've kind of revised expectations we're resetting expectations for what's going to happen there and uh, i think probably with us here in europe it, it's net good news in that i think actually europe now looks a more attractive place relatively um to come and invest in um, from a hotel perspective and maybe Europe is going to be the place that finally you know the global majors actually make some headway in because when I talked about those master development plans all you know landing flat on their face there's so many of them I mean I've you know the number of articles I've written you know some major US brand has said oh we're going to have a thousand hotels or 500 hotels across Europe and never got anywhere close to that um, you know I think maybe they might try and revisit and think well you know maybe we can um, actually do something in Europe and um, and there's going to be a revival of, of relative interest in Europe I think against uh, China over the next decade or so. Now we've been listening in to the chief executives of uh, major hotel groups as they deliver their first quarter results <coughs> and um, by and large they're uh, they're looking pretty positive they've um, they've all had a bit of a rough uh, start to the year uh, because of, of lockdowns in various jurisdictions across Europe but those are all easing those are all winding and winding down <coughs> and um, March was a much stronger month and they're all reporting and Keynes report that uh, after the end of March into April uh, things are continuing in a strong vein so it seems like it's a bit of a hockey stick shape to the recovery curve at the moment uh, the UK and Norway were were in the lead in terms of recovery with France not far behind and then latterly Germany is, uh, has, has released all Covid restrictions and is getting back to business too. So um, Whitbread reckons in the UK its Premier Inns are already averaging 80% occupancy in recent weeks um, for example and uh, if you certainly if you get on jump on their website and look at what the prices they're charging for their London hotels they are uh, certainly already looking quite strong. Um, the uh, the French group Cavivia, which uh, owns lots and lots of hotels across France and and broader Europe, uh, again look see see things picking up nicely. They're getting um, much more income from the variable elements of their their rental agreements, and um, also quite confidence from uh, the the Scandinavian group Pandox, which of course owns 100, over 150 hotels across the continent, and um, uh, seeing things picking up and also expressing quite a bit of confidence in the way that um, business events and uh, business bookings are coming back so seems like it's all set fair yeah and I think Whitbread is set fairest amongst the companies you were talking about there to be to be honest um i think it was a, a very strong set of numbers coming out i want to go back to authoritarian regimes all oh, right and talk okay. about um um your piece is saying look we're in recovery now um and we've, we were on our way and yeah i agree with all of that we certainly are um but 
you know did we really need to have such a bad time for the last two years was it did it actually did the whole lockdown piece actually deliver what the proponents of lockdowns um, claim and I think there's increasing evidence that no it didn't and there were alternatives to having an authoritarian dictated approach to lockdowns um, and um, the evidence uh, I'm putting forward for this is an article that was published in The Lancet. It was part funded by Bill and Melinda Gates um, Foundation, which is hardly a sort of anti-lockdown um, uh, source. Um, you know, they're big funders of a lot of um, let's let's worry lots about uh, uh, viruses, etc. type things. Um, so that they funded this Washington University study, um, and it looked at the two years twenty. 2020 and 2021 full calendar years and it looked at excess deaths and this is uh, um, you know a guesstimate of well it's a bit more than a guesstimate it's a fairly accurate uh, prediction of what deaths ought to have been in 2020 and 2021 um, and then you look at what they actually were and you take one from the other and you get your excess death levels and this is generally seen as the best way of thinking about how many people died thanks to covid um, partly because every country has a different way of measuring death um, it's a death with covid death of covid there's lots of different takes on it um, but actual deaths is a very hard variable which doesn't have any fiddling associated with it and there are fairly accepted ways of making predictions on what uh, death rates ought to have been Anyway, very long-winded bit to get to the conclusion that actually uh, countries that didn't do lockdowns particularly, and in Europe we had Sweden is probably the prime examples, they didn't do that badly at all. In fact, they did much better than the average in just Western Europe. Um, and Western Europe was much better than Eastern Europe, which had a very poor time. Um, but Sweden, in, in um, so to make the cross-country um, comparisons, you look at uh, uh, deaths per 100,000 of population, excess deaths per 100,000 of population so how many more people died in those two years um, every 100,000 um, compared to what was expected um, and in Sweden that rate was 91.2 so significant and no question that Covid was an issue I would suggest but um, given that they didn't lock down, given schools never closed, yes, they had a um, significant hit still on hospitality and and uh, hotel occupancy, but nowhere near to the extent we had in much of the rest of uh, Western Europe. Um, and the Western European average, so Sweden 91.2, the Western European average 140.0. And lots of you know talk about how badly the uk did well we're 126.8 so below the average for western europe um france uh, 124.2 slightly better and germany generally seen as very good at the beginning actually in the last you know over the full two years 120.5 so um what we're seeing there is a uh, you know france germany and uk pretty much uh, the same 
um, and Spain significantly worse, Portugal worse, Italy significantly worse, Netherlands bang on the average for Western Europe but worse than the UK and much worse than Sweden. Even Switzerland um, was worse than Sweden. So uh, Denmark, which is, you know, there's normally what, what's said um, is that, oh, Sweden's results were because, uh, you know, you have to compare it with its Scandinavian um, uh, um, sort of sister countries um well finland was slightly better at 80.8 but denmark was actually worse 94.1 so this 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 notion that sweden was going to you know have the bodies piling up in the the streets of stockholm was clearly ludicrous um and the swedes themselves very level-headed nation they looked at this the coronavirus commission the swedish government did and looked at it and said actually would we have done things much different well probably not that much um we'd probably have shut our uh national borders a bit quicker and stopped uh, big meetings and end mass gatherings but what we wouldn't have done is impose um you know the authoritarian way of doing things which was to make it illegal to to go to pubs and legal to gather they said that they would have made they would have kept that as they did um all advisory so no compulsion there they would just have help you know put the borders a bit tighter at the beginning and um introduced encourage social distancing and stop the mass gatherings as well that's the only thing that they said well we ought to have done that a bit differently overall um um they would have done things pretty much as they did so that's a sort of you know uh, the swedish level-headed review on how things were and how they dealt with the pandemic and i think there's a huge amount to learn um from other countries about the spectacular levels of damage that has been done to the economy and the and society um you know kids not being at school the mental health crisis we've got coming through the health crisis we've got from people not being able to go to hospital and the massive waiting lists we have for the health service um in the uk direct result of shutting down everything um during the pandemic whereas in sweden they carried on seeing their patients um, and it's a truly and all this fear-mongering we had um, during the process when there is no evidence that masks actually protect you there's a little bit of evidence to show that they help um, in terms of the transmission um, um, effect because everybody's socially distanced there's a sort of uh, um, nudge effect everybody's wearing a mask so you're a bit scared of everything um, and also obviously you, you know you're not going to be if you sneeze you're going to spraying out particulate matter um, but the, the the effect isn't big and the actual benefit of masks is fairly minimal and yet still we see people running around um in society now um sadly who have obviously been so terrified by all this government propaganda that they don't take their masks off i mean i see people in the street with it on still it's just bonkers so fortunately they're few in number but uh, um it's still i find it quite depressing um that we've gone to this point in our society of scaring people to that extent and the damage that's been done um as we know within the hospitality sector just how wrecked the sector has been by this unprecedented levels of damage done to it and although we're a spectacularly resilient industry and we're coming back as you show in this piece chris we're coming back 
better than ever um you know there's still this this horror that has to be sort of somehow overcome in terms of you know destroyed balance sheets um the big companies okay but for smaller companies no and even quite medium-sized companies are in serious stuck still as a result of um, you know the shutdowns that occurred during during the pandemic and you know a level-headed calm examination of what happened here is that actually it hasn't made a lot of sense to behave in the way we behaved we you know i think there's a better way of doing that and we should have this discussion now before we have the next i mean do you remember swine flu chris mm-hmm, i mean we could sure. well have locked down for swine flu and and destroyed um the economy and everything else for that you know and that wasn't necessary um and you know it, given that even though this virus had got out into the wider society as was initially feared with swine flu um uh, um actually the the solution probably wasn't to do what we did in terms of the lockdowns and we need to have that conversation now and i think hospitality needs to be in the forefront of saying well look hang on a minute there there is a better way and the better way is not to to shut down um as sort of in such an authoritarian way now let's move on to our five star and no star awards for this week and our five star award goes to uh to Qantas the Australian airline who uh since Australia reopened has got its flights up and running again and has just uh, confirmed uh a, a part of a very big order it was it was already talking about uh, with Airbus um it's going to be getting a whole load of new aircraft and some of those are going to be flying on some of the longest routes in the world uh where they're going to be which is part of their project sunrise uh um project which uh, will be sending ultra long haul flights from sydney to new york and sydney to london um, of course just you know this is news that re- reinforces uh, uh what we were talking about earlier you know the rebound is coming back strong it is um i think we need to sort of look at that there's still a way to go um i are to publish numbers they said in february and um, they published it uh the beginning of this uh beginning of april um the the, the numbers um for february um were 54.5 percent of the levels achieved in february 2019 so we've still got you know we're only just over halfway back to where we were in 2019 on the iata numbers the good news is that uh um ukraine invasion didn't um significantly detract from the recovery um process in fact um iata suggested that omicron in china was much more rather the way um china was dealing with omicron which we should say having just moaned mm-hmm. about lockdowns um um was 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 an issue um a bigger issue than the ukrainian um invasion by russia um and uh, but uh, so that's going to be an ongoing thing um in terms of the travel within china but particularly the travel um into china from um external countries um but travel within europe was remarkably resilient um despite the 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 war in, in the east um so this is all looks good from a from a recovery perspective but it's gonna uh, you know this this whole thing we've talked about it's uh, domestic travel back almost back to where it was um interregional travel has come back very strongly but still a little way to go but uh, intercontinental travel we're still a 
quite a way off that um but i think as you say chris i think the this indication that if we can get people you know flying down under um that's a that's a great start and i hope i hope we really do start seeing that come back sharply now too. and no stars this week go to uh hospitality businesses who are reacting to their shortage of staff by simply using tricks um to to poach staff from other companies um that may may provide a short-term solution if you are particularly short of staff but it actually doesn't help the whole sector so uh, no stars for those that are doing that uh, let's think about it a bit more broadly and recruit on the basis of skills and attitudes not simply by stealing people who know how to do the job at another company yeah and also well they need to start paying people more um, um, and that's the basic. I mean, if you've had your staff poached, they're presumably being poached because you, the, the poacher is uh, paying yeah. a little bit more cash. Um, that's why you're going to jump ship. And uh, I think they need to review both in terms of you know what it is you're offering. So um, can you improve the overall offer to your employees? It's not necessarily just cash money but i think there has to be a critical component of it and all of this rewards piece has to be uh reviewed i think and uh, inevitably what's going to happen is there is going to be significant inflation in terms of wages going into the businesses but also um as we've talked about in terms of this strong recovery we've got going on there's an opportunity to start pushing up pricing as well and i think in terms of you know people need to think a little bit more in terms of what their actual offer is um there's too much convergence around a single approach well i i think customers are getting increasingly sophisticated and they will pay significantly more if they believe they're getting significantly more so if you're offering that extra service that extra bit then you'll be able to charge that much more but don't try charging more if you're not offering that um and at the same time you know you've got to pay more um to your staff um and you've got to invest have enough people there to deliver this better upscale experience so um there's huge potential here for operators that are, um, are focused on this and understand it and see the challenge and are actually prepared to to change the way well, there we go that was a bit of a long one hope you enjoyed it and we'll say goodbye for now